0: to another edition of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for Sports.com on the Rivals Network. The Inside ND Sports Podcast is presented by Dead Soxy, makers of the best premium socks I've ever owned. Step into the new year in style. If you haven't made the move already, you really need to experience the difference a quality sock makes. Go to DeadSoxy.com and enter the code LUCKY at checkout to receive 25% off all orders, including sale items as they continue to grow. Dead Soxy wants to extend a special thank you for the continued support of the inside N D sports community. The folks at dead Soxy are constantly striving to improve their quality relationships and customer experiences, and even spending time with our subscribers on the insider lounge message board. I know they also spoiled me with a gift box of socks over the holidays, and hopefully you've spoiled yourself with some dead Soxy socks. I'm actually wearing some, At this very moment, I'm recording this ad. Remember to enter the promo code lucky at checkout at deadsoxy.com for 25% off all orders and happy new year from Soxy. Notre Dame's transfer portal activity kept rolling Friday with Ohio State defensive end Javante John Baptiste committing to the Irish and recruiting in the 2024 class. will start picking back up with a junior day on campus this weekend because there's always something going on in college football. The season may be over, but everything keeps moving forward. Um, and as we start to spin forward looking ahead at Marcus Freeman's next steps as a second year head coach, we wanted to catch up with two-time Irish defensive coordinator and former Cincinnati head coach Rick Minter. Rick spent the 2022 season as an analyst on Michigan staff. Rick, thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, appreciate it, guys. How are we doing?
0: Pretty good. Awesome. What uh, let's let's rewind in your coaching career, Rick. What were the biggest lessons you learned as a first time head coach?
1: Well, there was a lot. I mean, I took the job over at Cincinnati in uh, about this time of the year, uh, 1994. And coming out of Notre Dame as a D coordinator and had been a D coordinator for about eight or nine years prior, you know, you thought you said, well, I'm going to install my defense and nobody can do it better than I can do it. So I'm going to run the show on defense. I'm going to hire a guy, which I did. I said, I'm going to teach you my system And I want it to be run here. Um, In the end, that was a mistake only because it ran me ragged trying to run the defense. Uh, And today, that's even more important than even then. I mean, that's 30 years almost. Uh, Nowadays, that is critical that your head coach is free to recruit his own team every day and uh, be around the locker room so much more than maybe what a war room guy could do if he wants to keep his hand on everything X's and O's, I think that's a bigger challenge. But for me, it was, I, I, I was a workaholic as a defensive coordinator. So I took the job over and stayed the D coordinator and probably didn't know how to be the head coach. And after year one, I made it through the first season uh, the lessons of saying, well, Hey, I've called the same stuff. We called at Notre Dame. Right. And it worked. You know, I was, I had Bryant Young and Jimmy Flanagan and Jeff Burris and all those guys. <laughs> and uh, we were holding people to 80-something yards rushing. And then uh, why, why at the end of my first year at Cincinnati, did we have like 230, 40 yards a game rushing. And, of course, it's, it's more about the Jimmys and the Joes than it is the Xs and the Os. And we certainly had some great players there. But just learning to uh, – and then for the next seven or eight years, I really sat a little bit more in a CEO position leaning on offense of all things. I kind of got involved in the war room and offense and did that for seven more years before then going back to the defense, the final two years of my career. But I just think that uh, had I been a CEO to start with things would have gone a little bit better and trust somebody to run your defense or their defense and let them run with it and put faith in them and delegate and manage your own team, so to speak. Well,
2: Rick, it seems like it's, easier for offensive guys to become a head coach from from a lot of reasons just being able to talk about what the quarterbacks problems and progress are and things like that but obviously you've got Nick Saban who is a defensive guy you got Kirby Smart defensive guy so as Marcus tries to immerse himself into the offense a little bit more what does that process look like what did it look like for you as you kind of transition from being all defense all the time to a coach with some balance and and knowledge of enough knowledge of offense that you felt comfortable making those decisions.
1: You know, again, for me, it was kind of a weird track. I know right now Nick Saban and Kirby are probably clones. And that is they keep their nose on the defense uh, all week long. In fact, Todd Monk and a good friend of mine, congrats to Georgia for winning, by the way. Uh, Todd has total autonomy at Georgia Uh, Mm -hmm. that's part of his liking to be there it's part of him liking to work with Kirby Uh, at Alabama it's kind of that way that they're allowed to run the offense but it's Nick's offense it's not necessarily Bill O'Brien's offense it's Nick Saban's offense started with Lane and Shark and all those guys and Nick and Kirby stay on defense and they have eyes in on the offensive staff, whether it's a Joe Pendry type person who sits in there and listens, and then can convey back to Nick, "Hey, Coach, here's what they're doing this week," just to not not to have to have the coordinator bog down and do that. So Kirby and Nick are CEO head coaches right now, but they really are still defensive head football coaches. Okay, I mean they're my, not that they don't know what's going on on the other side, particularly Nick. But Kirby lets Todd Munkin run the offense. I know that for a fact. Uh, How much he knows exactly what's coming on the next play, you know, I don't know that. Uh, I kind of took a different track. I said I ran the defense first year. Then all of a sudden, rather than just sit in the middle, even though that's what the two coordinators probably saw, I started getting enamored by sitting in on the offense. Because from Tim Rose to Rex Ryan to Kim Dameron to A.J. Kristoff to right on down the line, I hired defensive coach at Rick Smith. I hired defensive guys to come in and run their stuff until year nine. Then I got tired of that changing every other year. And I said, I'm going back to defense, put back in my system, my way, and train two guys at a time to be the coordinator. If I would have co-coordinators, in the sense somebody left, that next guy would step up, but it would really be, what Rick wanted on defense, not necessarily the whims of a brand new coordinator every other year. Cause that seemed about what it was about two year run for every coordinator that came through there. So I didn't sit in on the defense to become a CEO. I went over and started learning offense and was a CEO. And then all the way up until 2000, when things were going wrong for our football team after back to back losing seasons, I picked up the, and called the plays offensively. People don't know this because I never advertised it, never threw the OC under the bus or anything like this. But I called the plays of the last four games of the regular season of 2000. And we were three and four at the time I did it because had I lost two more games, I would have been fired. And then all of a sudden we end up seven and four because we won all four games. And then we got a postseason play. And then I hired another coordinator. But uh, so I've kind of done it backwards at times. But I do think today's head football, you look what Jimbo Fisher just did. He just hired Bobby Petrino. Now, yeah. whether he's going to totally let it be autonomy, I hope it is. And I, and Jimbo's a friend, so I texted him and said, listen, you need to become a CEO head coach. you got 27 guys in the portal. Something's going on down there that <laughs> makes the head coach be needed in the locker room. I mean, the dynamics, guys, of what's going on today with the NIL and the portal have changed everything about the game. And I think the role of the head coach, being a head coach, a CEO guy, if you will, is even more critical today than ever to not be bogged down night and day in those war rooms where he can massage the locker room, talk to kids constantly, be recruiting their own rosters all the time.
2: If Marcus ever wanted to call the offensive plays, and I don't know that he does, but how long is that process going from a guy that's really good at wrecking other people's offenses to creating your own and calling your own. What is that a one year, two year, longer
1: evolution? Ask Matt Patricia, how that went for the Patriots. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, that, that was the most bizarre thing I'd ever seen. Okay. You two dudes that were just head coaches, come on over here and just run the offense for me and Mike will pick it right up, you know, and I'm not poking fun, but, you know, I don't claim even the year that I called those plays, you know, those last four games, I to this day still say in no way am I some prolific play caller. Now we scored 30 plus points, maybe 40, and I called the plays of everyone of those four ball games. But I would still sit there and say it's not without a little bit of a plan, but it was a little bit of like throw a dart against the wall. If it if it was good, we'd run it against somewhere along the way, you know. But uh, I do think it's a real art in calling plays offensively. I really admire these young guys today coming along, whether it's the Garrett Rileys that we just went up against, whether it's his brother, whether it's uh, uh, Todd Munkin does a wonderful job for Georgia, really making a mixed up, nice, uh, perfected, oriented offense. And I just think there's a knack to that. That probably something you got to do a long time. I don't think Marcus or any of us could slide over there and do it in a year or two. Uh, and the really, they shouldn't want to, uh, if you, if you're at the marquee job like Marcus is and like Jim, Jim Harbaugh does not call plays ever on offense or defense. He never comes around to our defense. Uh, he wants to know, you know, how's it going, but he never sits in a meeting, never comes down to our end of the field. He's with the quarterbacks and he's with the offense, but he does not sit and, their meeting rooms anymore he had a metamorphosis two or three years ago when they had that bad year and then he uh gave the power to his uh uh, coordinators to run what they wanted and they happened to also change the mindset to become a running football team and not be a throw around team and that's when they took off over here uh in Ann arbor you know winning 20 something games over the last two years was when they decided to run the football and and build on the strength of the weight room and the player development program and, and that type of thing. But I don't think it's easy at all to cross over on either side of the ball and to think you're going to be an expert in any short period of time.
0: Rick, how, how critical is this part of the off season in terms of, I imagine during the season, there are things that you maybe want to change, but you maybe need to wait to the off season to make those kinds of changes. I, what is the process of the beginning of the offseason and, and finding out what you want to change and then how you go ahead and go about changing those things?
1: Well, I think the, the thing that I love about the college football calendar is it's ever-changing. It's got its little cycles and periods of time. Uh, right now, people are in a probably a little bit, what is today, Friday? Well, They're about to hit the road again for a right. couple of weeks. Wrap up recruiting. It's not as dire now as it used to be, right, with the early signing date. But they're out there, mostly advanced uh, scouting, juniors already, et cetera, for the next year, sophomores already. Uh, But there's going to come a time after the second signing date, and a lot of coaches give their guys three to five sometimes, maybe a week, to just chill out. And then from there until the time you start spring training, now it might be different at every school, We get ours going pretty quick over here. I don't know the date, but uh, when I took the job with Jesse last year, we were getting into spring ball much earlier than probably the norm, particularly for a Midwestern team, you know, with weather and all that sort of thing. But normally it's kind of an April uh, type thing that you're in spring ball. So you get about a five to six week period of time. And if you're going to do it correctly, that's going to be your quality control period of time where you really want to sit back, go through your cutups, analyze things. Sad part for me at Cincinnati. And I've told people these stories. Half the time I'm still hiring coaches over that period of four or five weeks. And it really did, took away from the ability to evaluate critique, analyze your program. What did you want to change? What did you want to add? But to staffs that have good continuity, uh, as soon as they can get off that road recruiting uh, and kind of get it into a kickback nine to five, watch their players in the weight room a little bit here and there. It's really all about quality control and evaluating and assessing how did we do, what are we doing, how well can we do it, what needs to be cleaned up, what needs to be done away with, what can we add. Sometimes there's professional visits involved. You might bring, uh, if, you want, if you're want if you interested in the air rate. you're going to, bring Hal Mummy in and pay him a little bit of money to come in, and spend three days or two days. Your whole staff may go down uh, to university X and say, well, we're going to visit you for two or three days. Sometimes those friendships are forged in bowl games where the staffs kind of get to know each other if they didn't already. And then they say, Hey, do you mind if we come down or you come up? Uh, but there is an exchange many times, you know, football's copycat sport. Uh, you're always trying to emulate somebody. You see something on film, and if you have the answers, fine. If you want to go find the answers, fine. But then by the start of spring practice, you've got that playbook revised and and uh, got your you know have your sights set on you know the next year.
2: For our younger listeners who don't know, remember Rick's two tours of duty at Notre Dame, one under Lou Holtz, one under uh, Charlie Weiss, in the second. Stint. His son Jesse was an in defensive intern there for a year with Rick. Yep. And then this is the same Jesse Minter who just was a Broyles Award finalist as Michigan's defensive coordinator. And following up to that, Rick as a defensive analyst, other than getting to be grandpa up close and personal in Ann Arbor, what what do you? contribute as an anal- a defensive analyst to what Jesse's doing to what Jim Harbaugh's doing?
1: You know, uh, it's, it's really a unique role uh, for me. Uh, not that Nick Saban didn't create these spots about 20 years ago now when he first went to LSU and then went to the league, came back from the league. Then Alabama became the first to really, really get infiltrated with these positions called analysts or, or quality control people. Uh, It adds manpower to your staff. Uh, Nick started off making it a kind of a ex head coach, ex coordinator type guy who was being paid by someone else. Come on by and stay at Alabama for a year or two. I call it the paint job, right? Everybody gets a new paint job and they go to uh, Alabama or, or now Georgia, places like that with me uh i'm doing what those guys do it's different with it being your son being the coordinator and the benefit like you mentioned is being a grandpa uh constantly which is great for me my my specific job with jesse as he's done a really good job being a good ceo defensive coordinator amongst uh, 10 or 12 of us in the room uh with five regular guys so when i say 10 or 12 who are these other dudes in there right i mean that's a lot of bodies and so I'm an analyst. That's all I am as an analyst. I'm in charge of first and second down run game. So I'll go through and break down every run for the whole staff of every film that we're going to break down, four, five, six games, Ohio State the whole season, bowl game the whole season. Uh, and just to put the common language and the jargon on all the runs, just for they labeled all the same, called all the same. But my area of expertise is first and second down normal downs. So I'll get those plays clipped out and put in an edit and sort them and, and look at them over and over. And I'm always working a week ahead of time. Anybody who's working as an analyst is working a week ahead of time. So all of last week, I'm already breaking down this next week's game. We doesn't mean I ignore the current game that we're on, uh, sit in the meetings, watch practice, evaluate practice film. But I'm preparing the staff that when the last game is over, our, our Saturday game is over, come in the next morning at 11, everybody watch the film. We grade it together, or, or not grade it, but critique it together, have a general staff, everybody break up, kind of get to their areas. But by 6.30, our new week has started. And so we do an overview with one guy, that's his area. My area is, uh, you know, first and second down run. I put together video presentation, uh, talk through it. I say, here's who they are, what they are, how they do it, who they do it with, uh, even throw out some suggestions of what we're, we are to do against this team. And then from there, the the staff kind of takes it and runs with it. Jesse takes it. The rest of the staff takes it, runs with it. Everybody else has similar areas, passing game, third down, short yardage, goal line. These are all video and PowerPoint presentations made in front of the staff where Jesse's the main audience and anybody who wants to listen can be sitting in there and uh contribute or listen and learn and then he's beginning to compile the game plan and then so i've got a father-son relation and i've got just a co-worker relation uh, and I, we try not to overlap it all the time and it's got its benefits and it's had its moments trust me
2: rick um the ncaa is playing and i say playing with the concept because it looked like it was all going forward, and then they tap the brakes really hard on this and delayed it. But they're talking about at least at some point in the future, analysts being able to coach during the week. Do you see that as a valuable concept to to teams like Notre Dame, Michigan, you know, the blue bloods that have a lot of resources already? Oh. That is,
1: you know, good. to answer your question their strength in numbers, Mm -hmm. their strength in power. So to answer the obvious answer would be, Oh yeah, that would help Marcus. It would help Jim more, the more, the better as one who kind of views college football, maybe a little bit more from a, either from a viewpoint of coming from a have not program at times, Mm -hmm. or just what's right for college football. Uh, I just don't know where you draw the line because if you were to say, okay, see, I, I thought when they first got started doing the jobs I'm even doing now, just quote analyst, I thought somewhere along the way they put a cap on those things and really it still just kind of gets down to the university. I mean, we've got three or four on defense. They got three or four on offense and they got two or three on, on special teams. Well, that ends up being around 10. But if you said everybody could coach and do a lot of things or do one, I think suggestion was do what the GAs do. They can coach players and, and help and do all those things, but where do you draw the line? And, uh, am I, am I the old guy who's got experience to come in there and, and help take over basically a linebacker job, uh, from the other guy, where do we split responsibilities? Who's ultimately responsible for it? So as much as I would love kind of to see that be it laxed a little bit, I don't know where I would draw the line. I don't see it being good for competitive violence. I don't see it being good for uh, abuse would lead to restrictions because you'd have so many people just, uh, I, I think it hurts the co- the coaching tree in general, because if you're working down at Toledo and you're making Ninety thousand dollars, let's say, as the old line coach, and Michigan will hire you as an analyst for a hundred and twenty. Why wouldn't you come to Michigan? And so would we just start hiring all the coaches we could, only because we can afford them. So I, I wish, maybe, I, I guess, the happy medium for me would be to put a cap on it, and then allow analysts to do more than they're doing now, but may or may not be to to go carte blanche into full out coaching all the time. I mean, you can't even teach players in a meeting what to do. Uh, you can't have anything to do with uh, the, the players on the field. You are there to observe. You help the coaches, not the players. Uh, that's what one of the allegations are at Michigan currently right now. They had an analyst a year ago before I got there, overstep his bounds a little bit. And, uh, and they got nailed for it it happened in nebraska two springs ago a buddy of mine got nailed out there for uh, overstepping his boundaries as an analytical type guy now i know programs i know the inside workings of a lot of programs those those are guys out there right now grossly violating the intentional rules of restrictions of an analyst particularly behind the closed doors you know and those types of things so it's hard to monitor uh you know, probably cap it at, you know, maybe four, four, and three. That would be 10 to 11 type analysts. I wouldn't have any more than that. And if they let us do uh, a little bit more player interaction, I think it would be good. But I just don't know if you want to have 20, 30, 40 coaches out there on the field coaching these kids.
0: Yeah, you, you need more fields for all those coaches. I'm telling you.
1: <laughs> I just um, think that if it was unlimited and untapped right. or uh, uh, uncapped, where would it stop for those who truly want to spend the money mm-hmm. to have, you know, a 30 man staff, you know, now they, sometimes you can get way too many cooks in the kitchen and too many things the kids are hearing. And so I do think there's some maybe middle ground, but uh, I'm kind of glad they put the tap on it. And I'm not heartbroken because my responsibilities might not change much, but I mean, I've had my day in the sun. I know a lot of these other guys that are younger, that are there as a stopover would certainly love to be out there coaching more, but I kind of like the role I have myself.
0: Rick, we, the college football playoff just came to its conclusion where the lowest scoring game of the three games was the title game. And that included the champion (laughs) scoring 65 points in a game. I'm curious from your perspective as a defensive coach, do you see college football moving to a place where national championship teams have to be able to sort of score at will to win a title?
1: You know, I think we should all listen to the godfather, Nick Saban. Nick came up just like I did that, hey, any points given up is bad. I mean, we can hold people to nothing. And he used to do a darn good job of doing that. Kirby held TCU to seven points on a busted coverage. And that's the only reason they got seven. Right. But uh, uh, Nick has changed his philosophy. I've heard him say it. He says, we now have to. To ensure victory, we now have to score a lot of points. He says that Alabama, we've gone from holding people in that 12-13 range. Now when we're in that 21-24 to range, we feel pretty good about ourselves. And uh, I know that doesn't make him happy, but that's the reality. Uh, I do think scoring is the secret to winning. It is so hard to play great defense. Now, anybody that knows how to play, it's the – you know Kirby Smart, Nick Saban Way, they still know how to coach ball. And we played great defense ourselves at Michigan for 13 games. Now, what happened to us on that 14th game, I cannot explain. But if you look at the semifinals, look at the scores of those two games. Every school scored over 40 points. I know, T.C., you got a couple of pick sixes off of us. But fifty-one points, forty-five points, forty-two points, and forty-one points. So two defensive coordinators were pissed but happy that they won, <laughs> and two were highly disappointed that we gave up more points than we should have. That cost us the ball game. It's very challenging to be great on defense these days. So to ensure your victory, I mean, ask Lincoln Riley. You know, I mean, uh, he made a decision to keep his guy. I don't know why necessarily, but he did. and uh, But they're scoring points like crazy at SC, and they just keep losing those games late in the fourth quarter. But it's a challenge. I mean, all the way from the rules of the game that allow offensive linemen three, four, almost five yards leniency down the field on RPOs to the athletic quarterback, which almost makes it appear you got 12 in on the field uh, with dual threats. Uh, to the athleticism being put on offense these days where kids are coming up through the, through the ranks of high schools and seven on sevens and they all want to play wide receiver. They see the the money being made in the NFL at wide receiver. Uh, If half the receivers in college would flip over to become DBs right now, the NFL would look different four years from now, five years from now. But uh, the the, high, the the best players that are coming through the neighborhoods now want to play wide receiver and quarterback. And uh, so it's just more and more challenging to the defensive side of the football.
2: Well, if I'm not mistaken, Jesse was a wide receiver, so he was That's of- right.
1: He went over. <laughs> it was so funny. He grew up a, a wide receiver, played a little DB in high school also, but when he went to college, uh, was a wide out. And when he came to Notre Dame, you mentioned earlier, Eric, that was his first ever real indoctrination to defense. And so he was my intern that year. And then uh, we both got fired, of course, after his first year, my second. But from then on, he was a defensive guy and uh, went down to uh, was a G.A. for Brian Kelly. We're talking about a small world. He left since uh, Notre Dame, went to Brian Kelly and spent two seasons at UC and then got the job over at Indiana State working for Trent Miles, who had worked for me at UC. And uh, then I went over and joined him in 2010. And that was probably Jesse's most critical stage of development was when I went over there and ran the defense for Trent for one season, put in everything, taught Jesse how to really coach at that time. PJ Volker, who just got named the linebacker or I'm sorry, the D coordinator at Navy is Jesse's best friend. Uh, he was on that staff as a youngster. Uh, but that time I put in there for that one season propelled all of those coaches and that program upward. I took off and went to Kentucky, and they took off and went to Atlanta and started all over again at Georgia State and uh, did it again. They kind of resurrected a dormant program. and got it going, and, and then uh, unfortunately got fired. And then what happens sometimes is adversity comes into our life or is it opportunity comes into our life. He gets fired as we all do at Georgia state after the 16th season. But lo and behold, his next job is an entry level job with John Harbaugh with the Ravens. And that's Mm -hmm. what started all this run because he got four years in with the Ravens uh, under Wink Martindale and Dean Pease and John Harbaugh. Uh, John worked for me. That's how that, you know, relationship happened. Wink Martindale worked for me. Chris Hewitt, secondary coach for the Ravens, played for me. Uh, Jerry Rosberg, the special teams coach over there at that time, coached for me. Um, so it, it all goes in circles. It's kind of who you know. And because he got on with the Ravens, then all of a sudden, four years later, he's at Vanderbilt. Next year after that, he's at Michigan, hooked right back up with another Harbaugh. So it really is who you know.
2: As far as – you know, we were talking about scoring a bunch of points and stuff. Notre Dame fans are pretty excited about Sam Hartman transferring in from Wake Forest. With as busy as you are, unless he came up randomly in one of your first and second down defensive clips, I wouldn't imagine you got to see much of him. But do you have an impression of him? Have you seen him play? No, I
1: just heard that he's like the best quarterback in the portal. You know, yeah. probably one of the better players. I don't know the kid that well at all. I do know that Dave Clawson does an excellent job at Wake Forest. I mean, they are so hard to defend. They've got that spread thing going to where I guess the run actions and the RPOs take place closer and closer to the line of scrimmage, more and more uh, wow. less more uh, you know less time for reactive time on the RPOs, and that's why those quarterbacks and hence the the Deacons themselves have been winning games down there because they've been on the cutting edge uh, of uh, how to operate spread offense. Everybody tries to gain an edge, right? The guy at uh, Coastal Carolina kind of came up with, with something, and then Wake Forest came up with something, and then those teams became hard to beat and highly successful. It, it's a sad thing. I mean, uh, the portal works, in my mind, good and bad. I mean, it allows an opportunity of – a kid like this to get out of Wake easily and go apply his trade at a marquee program like Notre Dame, and that could make his career, it certainly will help make his life, you know, becoming a Notre Dame grad, uh, et cetera, which I'm very fond of, but uh, it's sad that Wake, you know, of all things, uh, kind of a middle of the program down there, lands a star, and then they can't keep him because of the rules of the portal now in the NIL world. So the game has changed, and the, and the way the game is played has changed. And uh, maybe it's good that some of us are kind of on the tail end of things.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Wick, we really appreciate you taking time to talk to us. So It's always a good time talking football with you. Um, and best of luck to you and Jesse moving forward.
1: Well, I appreciate it. And as you know, I always pull for the Irish. Uh, they still have a special place in my heart. I like Marcus. I certainly hope he does well unless we're ever playing them. But uh, I, I keep a watchful eye on the Irish all the time.
2: Well, I think they'd love to be playing Michigan because if it's in the next few years, that means it's going to be in the playoff. <laughs> that would be good for both programs.
1: Well, we didn't talk about the uh, expansion. You yeah, know, right yeah. now you got USC, UCLA coming. And I've always thought if there's going to be a window of time or opportunity that Notre Dame would consider it is at this time with these two mega conferences being uh, formed, I guess Jack feels, and it has to be this way, they have to do what's in their best interest to ensure that they've got a seat at the table and a legitimate chance to make the playoffs. And they really are, to me, sitting in a catbird seat because if they can just play well enough finishing finish in the top 12, 15 schools uh, every year, and they should, then uh, they could have a seat in the playoffs every year. So that's all you want to do is a shot to play for the title, and you can't get there without getting in the playoffs. And it's going to be a brand-new world two years from now when we go to 12 teams.
0: All right. Well, thanks a lot, Rick. We really appreciate it. As a reminder, the
2: Inside Andy Sports podcast is presented by Dead Soxy, maker of the best dress socks you'll ever wear. Irish fans, it's time to step into the new year in style. If you haven't made the move already, you really need to experience the difference a quality sock makes. Go to deadsoxy.com and enter the code LUCKY, that's L-U-C-K-Y, for those of you who are not gifted spellers, at checkout to receive 25% off on all orders, and that includes sale items. As they continue to grow, Dead Socksy wants to extend a special thank you to the continued support of the Inside Indy Sports community. The folks at DeadSoxy.com are constantly striving to improve their quality, their relationships, and their customer experiences. And you can even interact with the DeadSoxy folks on our Insider Lounge message board. Remember, all of the socks come with a patented technology with a no slip guarantee, made from bamboo for that premium luxury feel. Just got a box as a gift at Christmas time and couldn't be happier. Remember to enter the promo code LUCKY at checkout for 25% on all orders. And Happy New Year from Dad Soxie
0: inside ND Sports. All right, now it's time for questions. Our question segment is powered by AcrePro Midwest Farm Group. When it comes to land sales, it pays to have experts in your corner. AcrePro Midwest Farm Group are your local farmland specialists. With decades of experience in Indiana agriculture, no one knows the market better. Whether you're doing a 1031 exchange or simply buying and selling farmland, Your local AcrePro agent will walk the land with you and ensure the deal is done right. Visit AcrePro.com or call 765-587-3185 and talk to your local land expert today. Again, 765-587-3185. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at eHansonND. First one I have is from Ryan Urquhart at urquhart crna ian book and sam hartman are similar size both were multi-year starters and captains book was drafted in the fourth round and hartman will have a similar draft projection how would you differentiate who book was at notre dame and what hartman will bring to the Irish next year
2: the first thing i want to do is congratulate on us it only took us a year to figure out how to pronounce ryan's last name correctly (laughs) i had
0: i had a badger him I, i said hey i need to i need to figure this out uh, and, it and was he nowhere
2: near what I would have guessed. So I'm glad that he. Yeah, he, he it said was, it's he said it's Ur-Cart like
0: Elcart, and I was like, well, that makes it a little bit easier. I get, I get yeah. that.
2: Yeah, I would have said you're a quart, but that sounds like he's a um, division of a gallon. You're a quart. <laughs> okay, so to your question, um, I, I think there are some similarities there both really smart quarterbacks. They both have mobility. I think their evolutions were different. You know, book book's best season, statistically from a pass efficiency standpoint was the first year he was a starter in 2018. Mm -hmm. And then he went a little bit backward each year. So, but, but it was pretty level. His, his, he was pretty much a similar quarterback in 2020 than he was in 2018 I think he's the better runner in terms of uh, planned quarterback runs. Uh, I think that Hartman uses his feet a little bit more to um, extend plays rather than to take off or to be part of a quarterback running game. We've seen one season where um, Sam was prolific in rushing touchdowns and that was a couple of years ago. That was 2021. He had 11 rushing touchdowns. But I think overall, Ian is the better runner. Um, so again, I think there are some similarities, but but Sam has been better every year. He, his pass efficiency rate every year he's been in college has gone up. His completion rate every year in college has gone up. Um, I would say he's definitely got the longer passing game Right. Uh, prowess. Uh he also throws more picks. Uh, but um uh, he has more touchdown passes. So you know, overall I think Hartman is at this stage of his career the better. It's I wouldn't have said that in twenty eighteen. I thought Hartman was never gonna make it through the season. And I was right, the way he was getting hit in the Notre Dame game, I thought, boy, this guy's never gonna make it through the season. And he didn't. He got injured and uh and uh, you know then it was he didn't get the starting job back till a couple years later?
0: Yeah, I I agree with you on most of those points, or probably all those points. The The thing I wanted to add to start try to give some sort of measurement to the difference in terms of the downfield throwing. Um, PFF has a stat they call big time throws, which is a funny, funny phrase, but uh, it doesn't sound very like uh statistical. Um, it just sounds like something that's more made up, but the what, what they what they consider a big time throw is a pass with excellent ball location and timing, generally generally thrown further down the field and or into a tighter window, um, so it it is subjective. But um, six point five percent of Sam Hartman's attempts over the past three seasons were big time throws. Um, Book in his three seasons as a starter, what um, was at four point four percent big time throws. So there is that. I mean, that's a a third of a difference. Um, between those two guys in terms of their willingness to make the throws downfield and into a tighter window. Um, And another way to measure that is average depth of target. book in his career, his depth of target was 8.9 yards downfield, and Sam Hartman's was 12 yards downfield. So we're going to find out how much that is related to what Wake Forest offense was, what Wake Forest receivers were able to do versus Notre Dame's, Um, but everything seems to indicate that Sam Hartman's going to push the ball downfield. And that is probably the biggest difference between him and Ian book, especially at least as throwers. Obviously the the running game might be different between the two in different ways, but um, as throwers, I think that's where we'll see the biggest difference. And and Sam Hartman, he just, he stands in the pocket confidently. I I think we saw at times Ian book, just like dance around and like, okay, the first sign of trouble sort of get out of there sam hartman like and I, I i wonder how much that's related to the slow mesh like rick hit on it like they they do everything so much closer to the line of scrimmage like just out of that slow mesh thing They i think you just get comfortable like being so close to your lineman in front of you and not being afraid of what's coming at you so um i think i think that will be that just stand i mean if you just turn on the film and you just watch him in the pocket it it, it stands out like it's it's hard to sort of miss like how confidently he he stands in there now now maybe he makes some bad decisions from time to time but um he was also asked to throw a lot of footballs so i think that that leads into the the interception problems as well all right next question is from at charles w wolf do you how do you think 2022 notre dame would have performed against georgia in the title game also how do you think the 2012 team would have matched up against 2022 georgia just a parlor game as we continue to speculate on how to close the gap. Okay, let me
2: start with the first and then Tyler go and then we'll do the 2012 thing. Um, It's really hard. First of all, I would have to know if you have Buckner or, or Pine as your quarterback. Right. I think Pine is a much worse matchup against Georgia than Buckner is. I think Buckner's running ability helps him some. Although, as we saw with Max Dugan, only to a certain extent is that going to help. But I think Pine had trouble with the more elite defenses. You got to remember Buckner faced number 10 and number 12 team in total defense in his first two games of the season with either no Jarrett Patterson or a hobbled Jarrett Patterson. And certainly the running game hadn't gotten going yet. So my score would be different. I'm going to assume that it's Buckner. Then you kind of look at the scores and you go, well, they beat Oregon 49 to 3. They beat South Carolina 48 to 7. So that was a common opponent. Um, and yet they had games like Missouri where they it was 26 22. Right. I think Notre Dame would have to get them into a plus turnover game where Notre Dame was like plus three in turnovers, where TCU was minus three. <laughs> um georgia wasn't great in turnover margin but notre dame wasn't either you'd have to have a special teams block punt you know maybe a defensive touchdown so going through all those wiggles i'm gonna say
0: 38 17 georgia uh, i didn't come up with scores <laughs> i just uh, and i i didn't spend a lot of time analyzing it just I, I didn't think you'd be particularly close in either in either case um, I mean, they were close in
2: 17 and 19, and those were supposed to be blowouts. But I don't think that Georgia was as complete offensively right, as they are now.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I don't think Notre Dame – I mean, no one can run against Georgia. Like, that's, that's what you can't do. Like, they are the best run defense in the country, um, and that's Notre Dame's strength. And and it, I, it, it would have to lean on the passing game and <laughs> – Whose confidence? Which they
2: did in 2019. I mean, they correct, all but abandoned the
0: run in that game. Um, but yeah, I just, I just don't, I would not like Notre Dame. So I, my analysis was how the 2022 team would do poorly, and how the 2012 team would do was terribly. I, I don't know what your thoughts are with the 2012 team fare better than the 2022 team against Georgia. No,
2: and and let's pretend that the 2020 tw- 2012 team had skill sets that are 2022 you know the offenses were different in 2012 and uh but but let's say you know Manti was playing at 230 instead of 255 or whatever he was in 2012 um but what, what would kill Notre Dame against Georgia is the same thing that killed Notre Dame against Alabama Notre Dame was 74th in pass efficiency that year that is by far the worst team to ever play in a national championship game in the 25 years we've had either the BCS or the playoff. Mm -hmm. I mean, more than 30 spots. Yeah. uh, And that would catch up to Notre Dame. They would get into a hole right away. And then you would know they'd have to pass, which is not their forte. (laughs) It would just kind of be a vicious cycle. So I think the 2022 Notre Dame team would actually do better than the
0: 2012. Okay. Yeah, we, we agree on that. All right. Next question is from at Mike Menard 12. It seems that the linebacker room continues to put a premium on experience over potential is the secondary philosophy different than the linebacker room. We seem to allow our DBs opportunity to learn on the job and we don't afford the young linebackers, the same luxury. Can you shed light on this?
2: Well, I think the premium is on who gives you the best chance to win, not necessarily experience. And that's their assessment of who gives you the best chance to win. And you have three really experienced linebackers. You had four at the beginning of the season with hobbled Bo Bauer, but um, you had Bauer, J.D. Bertrand, Maris Leafau, and uh, Jack Kaiser. And then you have this next wave of linebackers, and it's going to get, more pronounced in 2023 as Drake Bowen and Jaden Osberry and Preston Zinner come aboard, that there's going to be more raw talent, higher pedigree recruit in those lower classes, challenging maybe not superior athletes, but very knowledgeable players. Look, being in the right place matters. And if Prince Colley and Jalen Snead had been in the right place and practiced more often, they would have overtaken the more experienced players. What happened with Jaden Mickey and Morrison, and particularly with Morrison, is that there wasn't a lot of competition to jump over. Right. Cam Hart wasn't himself. I don't think he ever was 100% during the season. Clarence Lewis is a serviceable player, but not a star. Tariq Bracey had an incredible um, incredible season but nobody was challenging him for the nickel spot so really just to get to the number two spot you had to hop over philip Riley and bo barnes and uh, chance tucker who those guys didn't play this year right so they felt like living with the mistakes of morrison and mickey made more sense than living with the limitations of tucker Barnes and Riley. I think Tucker out of the that group has the most chance of eventually being a two deep kind of player. Um, at least he's on that trajectory right now, and they seem to be pretty happy with his bowl practices. So it, they're just different situations, but eventually, uh, it, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens with the linebackers in the spring time because Collie's in the right places more often. Kaiser is actually. I think better right now than Maris Liafow at that will position. And Jalen Sneed's coming on at Rover. So it's gonna be really interesting. And then where does Drake Bowen fit into that? I think probably a backup middle linebacker. But yeah, he's playing
0: baseball I think, too. And I, I think it's it's sort of runs counter to this idea, in my opinion, that the 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 older linebackers get deference and they're not and they're maybe not as concerned about like athleticism because like I think that's why Maris Leifau did play. He he He's older in terms of like being in the program, but he doesn't have that much experience. Like I think, but he offered something different athletically and physically than Jack Kaiser did. So I think that's why he, his, his leash was as long as it was and why he played as much as he did. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that influenced this was less the philosophy and more the the older players at their at, at, at those different positions. The older DBs just weren't preventing the younger DBs from getting on the field. Um, and that's just not not the same at linebacker. I know some fans and even some analysts may feel differently about the level of play of the older linebackers. Um, but Notre Dame liked for the most part what those linebackers were doing um and felt more confident in in those guys playing. Whereas Obviously, um, I mean, I mean to me, like the biggest, the biggest hurdle you had to clear to to become Benjamin Morrison in 2022 was Clarence Lewis, and the biggest hurdle you'd have to clear um, in 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 um, at the linebacker position would be Ismaris Leifour, JD Bertrand, and I don't, I don't think that you're, you, I think those two players are better than Clarence Lewis, and so that's where the the difference comes in. All right, next question is from at Henry Bede. Which rising sophomore will make the largest jump in 2023? Boy, I had a big list because I
2: think there are a bunch of them, right. but I will not give you all of them. I will really whittle it down, and and it's painful to do it. And, and I'm really taking more of a chance. I, I mentioned this in an article recently. For me, the most exciting time to cover a player is when he's not yet at the corner. He hasn't turned the corner yet. He's coming close to the corner. And you, with limited knowledge, have to project whether you think that player's going to turn the corner into greatness or at least really goodness. And I and I think that's where these two players are: Billy Shrouth and Jalen Sneed. So again, we haven't had the eyeball evidence that I love to have. And yet there's enough snippets of it and enough. Oh, I hear Harry talking about this or I hear, you know, coaches talking about it without, you know, w- with no bias with their and and their teammates talking about them. And right. you just feel like those are the two. Now, again, there's a whole bunch of others and I don't want to, if Tyler's answer is different, I don't want to spoil it. But I mean, I came up with a list of 10 pretty easily of guys that I think can make a jump, including some injured players.
0: Yeah, um I I could have predicted that I I, I would have, actually I probably would have guaranteed that you put Jalen Steve on your list. Uh um and Billy Strouth was also on mine. I, I what I did to to whittle it down was like two guys I picked one guy that played this year, and then one guy that didn't play this year. And so Billy Strouth was the guy that didn't play, and then the guy that played would be Tobias Merriweather. I still think he's gonna right. make a big jump in twenty twenty three, given that we didn't see a ton of him this year. Um, in part because he was learning and in part because at the end of the year he had a concussion Um, but I still think that there's going to be a big leap there for him so those are the two guys that I pointed to Um, other guys that I considered holding stays at tight end Um, I think Jaden Mickey he did play a lot but if you're talking about quality of play I think he can make a big jump Um, and then the other ones that I want to see but I don't know is one of the defensive linemen and the two that I are my hunches would that could be would be aiden Gobaira and tyson ford
2: yeah i think one of the defensive it needs to be maybe one or two of those defensive linemen and i would throw burnham and tuli halamaka in that bucket although i'm not predicting them to make big jumps i'm just saying they need to be kind of the surprise guys that aren't on our list right you know eli reardon was a guy i thought of um bryce mcpherson as a special teams guy sure um, let's see who else I did have Tobias I'm Jadarian Price oh yeah uh, right yeah <laughs> and Eli and then uh, even Morrison I think I think Morrison is going to be a star next year Um, it, as as good as he was this year you know he had half a year where he was really good and half a year where right he was learning and uh, I think he can have a full year like that I mean you think about it uh, out of the power five cornerbacks and safeties and everybody else on defense, he was tied for first in interceptions. If you include the Fs or the, um, the group of five guys, he was tied for third and that's amazing. And you think about some of the teams he did it against. So uh, I I'm pretty excited about him, but yeah, that class is, that was a good question. That was a fun question.
0: Yeah. Not that the other ones weren't good. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I hadn't really considered where Morrison like stood in the national, interceptions category till the other day i wrote about mentioned it when he was named a FWAA uh freshman all-american and i was like oh yeah i mean only two guys in the in the entire fbs had more interceptions than him and there was just one they, those two guys only had one more interception than he did um which isn't that I, I mean it makes sense once you think about it but i hadn't really taken the time to sort of think about that so and it's kind of bizarre that he had six interceptions and, I and those only came in three different games, so uh, the potential there is is certainly high. All right, I was going to c- combine the t- the next two questions um, because the it, there was a little bit more of an answer since the these questions were submitted. Uh, the first one is from the, at the real Wenzel. Can and Notre Dame please get some defensive tackles? I'm worried that a poor D line will waste Benjamin Morrison and other talented cornerbacks in 2023. Also, if defense is poor, the best offense since 2015 will also be wasted. Give me some good news on d line transfers, please. And I, one Irish one on the Insider Lounge asked who are some legitimate defensive ends and D may go after in the portal either now or in the spring. Well, since you wrote the story, I'll let you go first on this, but I've definitely got some thoughts on
2: on this. And also calling this person by their initials because I saw an
0: alternate uh, name come up for those initials. All right. Um the news obviously of earlier today I mentioned I mentioned in the lead Javante John Baptiste from Ohio State committed to Notre Dame on Friday. Um he totaled 19 tackles, four sacks, and four and a half tackles for a loss in 2022 as a rotational defensive end behind starter Zach Harrison. Um he is an intriguing prospect. He played for five seasons at Ohio State never really Cracked as a regular starter. Um, pro football focus gave him some favorable grades this past season. He his defense grade and pass rush grade is actually better than any of Notre Dame's defensive linemen in 2022. and that includes Isaiah Foskey. Um, but obviously, um, as you can imagine, Jean Baptiste was lower than Ohio State starting defensive ends with Zach Harrison and JT Tua Um, I'm not sure if I'm saying his last name right. Um, I, I think I think Jean-Baptiste's uh stats are a bit aided by some garbage time opportunities he had two sacks against toledo in the second half and that was a blowout victory um and towards the end of the season his playing time really decreased he only played 20 snaps against maryland michigan and georgia combined although he did share a sack uh in the in the college football playoff semifinal of of stetson bennett although it wasn't if you if you find the film which i did it's not necessarily a particularly uh impressive one he was sort of there and I think maybe touched Stetson on the head when when a few guys sort of converged on him. Uh, so I, I'm intrigued by it. It's not it's not like uh, it's, he's no guarantee. And I mean these, these are these are the kind of guys that Notre Dame has been going after. There ha- They haven't or at least has had success with. They haven't had a lot of success with like big time guys that are taking the next step um, and jumping up in competition or proving guys. I, I I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that Javante john baptiste is a proven entity um but if anyone should know about him you would think it would, would be someone like at washington who was at ohio state for a majority of john baptiste's career well i was thinking um
2: you know what are we going to do with this guy's name and headlines if he is really good is he going to be jjb and then i saw an online conversation where the people just kind of were throwing jjb out there and uh, somebody wasn't familiar with what that stood for and he said Jar Jar Binks
0: <laughs>
2: which uh, is from the, one of the worst Star, War movie, Star Wars movies I love the Star Wars movies not the ones with Jar Jar Binks and I think part of it is because of Jar Jar Binks anyways you wanted some good news with portal defensive tackle guys I think um, getting Javante is going to probably allow Riley Mills to stay inside, so I think that's good news for the defensive interior. I think that's where he's going to be at his best. That's where he's needed. Um, and Notre Dame could certainly add an interior guy between now and, as Tyler pointed out, a week from Tuesday. And they're very, um, they're very clandestine with their some of their uh, grad transfer information. Uh, because, and we'll get to this question a little bit later. I mean, you, you can certainly steal somebody else's grad transfers right. before they roll and so forth. But uh, uh I think the good news is even if they don't add somebody in this little cycle here or after spring, there's some talent on this roster. I mean, Gabe Rubio was a high pedigree guy. Tyson Ford certainly was. Um, Aiden Kiana Ina if he can be healthy gives you a different dimension at that at the nose guard position at 323 I mean there's teams where you want a a Lewis Nick sized nose guard and and that would be a very positive thing if Aiden could be uh, a solid rotational contributor there's a lot of ifs but there's also a lot of talent and we'll just have to see if that player development plays out and if it doesn't then I could see Notre Dame you know, looking at that batch of trans- grad transfers that come into the portal in May and and trying to
0: pluck somebody then. All right. Next question is from Chris Scheiber at Scheibe 43. Worst case here, do you think there are any offensive linemen buried on the depth chart that could make the leap to defensive tackle? It's not ideal, but has worked out in the past with Jerry Tillery, the most recent example, might give a guy a chance to see the field instead of a transfer if they are interested. And I, as I
2: remember, you know, going back, I know some of these guys did play both ways. I don't see anybody that would be a natural fit. And you're not looking for a project and numbers. You're looking for an impact player. I don't see that, you know, Tillery made the or, or made the shift as a recruit. Now He was a standout on both sides of the ball in Louisiana. Uh, and so him becoming really good, all-american defensive tackle wasn't a surprise i did ask harry um later about that and he said he would have been an all-american on offense as well had he stayed with the offensive line track track but they needed him on defense so he came to notre dame and was rated by rivals as a defensive lineman before he uh signed to uh his letter of intent but yeah he was good on both sides of the ball i don't see anybody that's even a good project, to be honest with you. Another one that would have been interesting is Michael Mayer. He was an outstanding defensive end. I think he definitely made the right choice, but I think had he taken plan B, he would have been pretty darn good at that as well.
0: Yeah, that that also reminds me. I remember everyone was like, Chase Claypool needs to be a defensive end. It's like, well, he's a pretty good receiver, guys. Uh, I, w- I was w- one of those people because
2: it wasn't happening for him. And he was such a good athlete. I thought you got to get him on the field somewhere, but yeah,
0: I I was one of the boneheads that said that. Um, the the one the one guy that makes the most sense to me would be Rocco Spindler. Um, I just think he could do that job. Now, how, how good could he be I, I don't I don't know. I'd want to see some of that from him before I could make any. Certainly, bold, got size bold pro- proclamations. Yeah, but I, he he's the best. Like I think, like size and sort of mindset, like yeah, uh, fit for that. I think. I think he. I think he. I think it would sort of be somewhat natural for him to be a defensive tackle. I mean, if if you've met or talked to or interacted Rocco, the whole with family Spindler, <laughs> right? Um, so that would be one person I would point to. But like you said, like I don't. Is it? It would Rocco then be able to give you good snaps this coming season. I, I don't know. Um and, and would that like convince someone like him to stay rather than go somewhere else? If they're getting passed up on the offensive line. I I don't know that I can say that with any confidence. Um The other guy I would like maybe long-term when we're talking about a guy that's still not here yet would be Joe Odding. I think he um, is another nasty offensive line, interior offensive lineman that has good feet, um, a good length that I think would be an interesting defensive tackle potentially if you wanted to make that. Now, I'm not predicting this to happen, um, but if you're asking me who from the offensive line could you find a way to sort of mold into a defensive tackle, those would be the two guys that I would point to. All right, next question is from LDL Go Irish on the Insider Lounge. I felt the Notre Dame offensive line combination blocks, cross blocks, double team, and release, etc., were behind other good offensive lines in college football. I know that Harry Easton. Stresses fundamentals and last season was his first back in charge. What skills, et cetera, can we expect to be taught in year two that were not taught in year one? You know, we've
2: had Mike
0: Golick Jr.
2: and Aaron Taylor both on pretty recently. I don't know that they either of them suggested that there were going to be new things introduced. I think it's more a matter of they. The the older linemen were taught a certain way by Jeff Quinn that wasn't technique driven, and what we would expect to see in the evolution is better at what they're doing. Not necessarily, oh well, I didn't want to overload them. Now they they get to learn this. I think if there is going to be are going to be changes as far as different techniques and different uh, tools and so forth, it would be driven by. Tommy Reese talking with Harry about, you know, we have, you know, a different team this year. We're going to be more wide receiver oriented. I'm not saying necessarily that's going to be the case, but they may be more wide receiver than tight end oriented. Let's do some different things with our blocking schemes. Then Harry would be teaching maybe some new things, but I think it's just a matter of getting that culture deeper, getting the technique and the, um, and the uh, fundamentals more ingrained what do you think tyler
0: yeah i I don't i don't think new skills will be taught i think it's the same set of skills that are sort of always taught and that's where here he stands starts it's a matter of at that after that like it's a matter of how advanced each individual player is in executing those skills or the techniques that are being taught to them um so i i don't know that like next year they're gonna handle combination blocks in a different way um I think Harry Eastman has a pretty good understanding of what he wants to do and a good track record of how it works. Um, now, I mean, I think any good coach is always adapting and learning, but I'm not sure—at least to my from my standpoint—what what those new wrinkles would be like that that Harry Eastan felt like he couldn't implement in his first season. I, I think Harry Eastman is demanding, and he's going to want you to do exactly what he he feels like he needs you to do and make you play to that standard. Not He's not going to say, well, Joe Wall, you don't need to do this. Like that's You're so good at this. We're just going to have you do this. We're not going to make you do this. that's. That's not the way he coaches. He, he's going to make demand everyone to get to the level that they need to to be able to play. Now, obviously, that doesn't always show up in the best ways you want it to on game day. Like Not not everyone's going to execute on every play, um, but they're going to be taught to sort of get a job done. And um, I think the growth will come in just sort of – more of that teaching, getting better at it. Um, I mean, we're talking. Joe Alt was the best graded offensive tackle in the country by PFF, and he he's talking about how he needs to get better with his footwork, and that's like that's like step one for offensive linemen, get better with your feet. Um, so when, you, when you're talking about the best offensive lineman on the team um, being focused on that, I think that sort of speaks to the the focus on the fundamentals and continually pushing to get better in those areas because you're never going to be perfect at it. All right. Next question is from Christopher Cruz at ChrisND92. What are the portal signing rules? Can a prospect sign at any time right after slash as they commit, or is there a separate portal signing period?
2: Okay. So this is my understanding of it. There is no portal signing period. You, um, You go into the portal, you visit a school, you commit to the school, and then you enroll. So you sign the enrollment paperwork and all that kind of stuff once you're enrolled then you're off the market now you've there was even one today there was a western michigan running back who was committed to oklahoma state who i think is going to minnesota now so technically if sam hartman weren't enrolled he could still say hey i decided i want to go play for brian kelly at lsu he could have Uh, done that and oh my god
0: uh, you you just created a nightmare scenario for okay but I made it
2: unlikely because (laughs) he already has a quarterback and he already the guy that he danced with is in the portal so um uh but but I'm just saying you know and that's part of the reason that these teams want to keep things hush hush because now I would imagine that uh Javante has been on campus he may have you know, done all the enrollment paperwork. And so he's kind of off the market. So they don't want to, you know, kind of tip their hand uh, unless they're absolutely sure that that player is hundred percent committed and so forth. So it's, it's definitely a different thing. You can't just sign a letter of intent that is not part of the national letter of intent program. There might be something with junior college transfers, but uh, Notre Dame isn't involved with junior college transfers.
0: Yeah, I, I don't I don't know of any other different rules that you didn't sort of or or protocols that you didn't sort of outline there. So I don't I think you just you just sort of enroll and that. Obviously, the window for that to happen in in this uh, time between the fall and spring semester is pretty condensed. And so, um, you know, you don't have a lot of time to figure out if you're enrolled or not. You got to you got to sort of both of those things are happening at once while you're going through the process and trying to make a decision as well. All right, next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. Now that 2022 is over, what would your final grades be for the following coaches? Marcus Freeman, Tommy Reese, Al Golden, Chancey Stuckey, Chris O'Leary, and Al Washington. Please consider giving a separate grade for recruiting and one for coaching in general.
2: Okay, Uh, here's my caveat here, Marie. When my youngest son was a fourth grader, he went to a charter school. And they wanted somebody to teach a foreign language class. So I volunteered Uh, my native tongue on my mother's side. My grandparents were immigrants is Italian and I had learned Italian from them and in college and was an A student in Italian. So I thought, well, I could teach a bunch of fourth graders Italian. Uh, There were like 28 kids in the class. And the number of kids that didn't get an A was zero. So I'm kind of an easy. I'm kind of an easy grade. Either I'm a great teacher or just a softy and just can't give, you know, harsh grades. So with that, uh, as far as the recruiting grade, I did not include a 2024 recruit because the class isn't done. I didn't recruit uh, include portal. Otherwise, Tommy Reese would get an A for CJ Carr and Sam Hartman in the recruiting. So I went B and B, B for on the field, B for recruiting with Tommy Reese. Uh, With Harry Heastan, I went A and B. I I thought Harry was outstanding, but I thought his recruiting class wasn't, you know, a bunch of five-star offensive linemen.
0: You're sucking up. She didn't even ask for a Harry Heastan grade.
2: Oh, I thought it was all the all the assistant coaches.
0: No, I think it's just the coaches that people might not have high opinions of. I think that's what she I think she skipped the coaches that would be get get high grades. I think that was kind of the Okay. I'm process. gonna go through
2: all of them so you can get my my <laughs> grading system. So I'll go through them quickly. Um Dylan McCullough, I gave A's in both counts, even though just one recruit with Jewel uh Jeremiah Love, he got hit the home run with that one. Uh Jared Parker, I gave A and incomplete. Uh, Cooper Flanagan was already committed before uh, Jared, so there wasn't anybody to recruit. Uh, Let's see. Chansey, I gave a B- on the field and an A-plus in recruiting. Marcus Freeman, I gave a B and an A-plus in recruiting. Al Washington, I gave a C- on the field and a D in recruiting um let's see al golden b and b o'leary b plus and b minus mickens a and a plus and brian mason a plus 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 and a now he didn't recruit anybody as far as a scholarship player but he finds incredible walk-ons or transfers so in his case i had to give him you know credit for the for the walk-ons i mean Yokum was outstanding. Sot was basically a walk-on. He was outstanding. Groupie was serviceable. And certainly in this next group, he's got some people from the portal. Uh, he's just outstanding. So I'm probably gonna disappoint you. I'm sure you were hoping for worse grades, Murray, in some
0: areas. Did you give a Marcus Freeman grade in there?
2: Yes, I gave him a B for the on the
0: field and an A plus for recruiting. Okay. I gave. Uh, so I, I didn't grade everyone, I, I I only did the assignment. So hopefully, that gives me an A. Uh, Marcus Freeman, I gave him a B minus for coaching and an A for recruiting. Um, uh, I think the recruiting class was good uh, or great, I think it could have been better, but I, I still think it was really good. Um, coaching, obviously, the losses to Stanford and Marshall, you, you just you can't sort of erase that from the record books. Um, Tommy Reese, I gave a That's B. The dog ate my homework uh tommy reese i gave a b plus in coaching and a a minus in recruiting oh and i also included i did include transfer portal guys i didn't include 2024 recruits but i figured since i guess maybe i'm anticipating that notre dame's not going to get any of their transfer commits stolen before uh, the semester starts in in less than a week uh so i i went uh i did include those with mine so that's uh played heavily into Tommy Reese's a minus for getting Sam Hartman. Um, I think he, he would have got an a or an a plus if he got Dante Moore. but I think Kenny Minchie is a good rebound there. Um, Al golden. I gave a B in coaching and a C plus in recruiting. I, I I haven't heard of like Al golden, like moving the needle a lot in recruitment. And now maybe, maybe I'm just out of touch and I I don't know. I'm not speaking to the right recruits. I I just haven't seen him make a, a, a big enough impact uh, in recruiting to give him a, a terribly high grade. I'm not saying he's like a negative in, in recruiting in any way, but I don't know that he, I think he's more um, of a secondary recruiter than a primary recruiter for Notre Dame. Uh, at least he was in his first year. Uh, next would be Chancey Stuckey. I gave him a B for coaching, a recruiting A. Um, I thought there was some progress with the receivers, not as much as you would hope, but I still think there's some promise there. Um, and I thought, obviously a pretty good recruiting haul at the receiver position um, when he was starting from scratch there. Chris O'Leary, I gave a B plus in coaching. I think, uh, I think his coaching, the safety play wasn't like awesome, but I also don't like the talent that he has at the safety position. I I don't think is that high either. Um, So I think he does a pretty good job of making, um, making do with the talent at his disposal. For recruiting I gave him a B um certainly would have been um an a if Peyton Bowen would have stayed in the class um but didn't get that far but I think having, <laughs> maybe having you get pretend- that grade amended if
2: Bowen transfers like six times
0: during his uh, <laughs> career yeah yeah maybe it won't be as big of a detriment uh the person I was the most harshest or the most harshest the harshest on uh uh was Al Washington I gave him a B minus in coaching and, and a C in recruiting I I, I don't know that I don't have a ton of confidence in the additions that he made on the defensive line class are difference makers. Um, and I thought that there wasn't enough development defensive line wide um, to give him higher than a B minus on the coaching front. All right. The, as I like to, to sell Eric, uh, Marie sometimes she gives us questions that are better for entire podcasts than just questions. So let's reset uh, for our last few questions here. I, I, that's not a that's not a uh, negative to Marie. That's they they are very good questions, but they they take a lot of time to sort of walk through. We could we could probably break down those grades in, in greater detail, but we want to keep the podcast moving. Um, a long question here, so bear with me. Another one from LDL Go Irish on the Insider Lounge, picking up on Eric's article about what Notre Dame can learn from Georgia where ND needs to be better in previous articles, noting ND's better recruiting performance as shown by the percentage of four and five stars, but few or no five stars. And knowing the importance of recruiting and development, no five stars means greater importance of development. Please comment on how the developmental model at ND can be enhanced and what coaches can keep up with those recruiting and development expectations. In my opinion, defensive line development in doubt, linebackers have regressed, but hopefully will flourish in year two. Of new defensive coordinator and scheme, wide receiver Lorenzo Styles went backwards. Can he regain form and others become scary playmakers? O-line too slow to become cohesive again year two. Should be much better in second year of Harry Heestand etc. I think LDL Go Irish took a page from Marie's uh, playbook there and then gave us a, a story prompt rather than a podcast question prompt. But uh, Eric, I cede the ground to you. I'm going to try to condense this
2: LDL, um, and I hope that this is a satisfactory answer. Um, You know, player development throughout the team is important. Here's where it's maybe difficult to judge. For example, Chancey Stuckey succeeds Dell Alexander. Now you would say, oh gosh, he's going to look really good um, perception-wise against Dell alexander but if he has to change a lot of bad habits then maybe him being a stickler for that standard makes some guys go temporarily backwards or slows their progress because he's not going to let them on the field until they reach that new standard uh and so maybe my grade to marie wasn't fair to him but i in talking to the players the precision of which and there is a really high standard for Chansey. Um, One thing that I will kind of ding Al Golden for is having all the players learn all the linebacker positions. Uh, I think having players like Jack Kaiser and J.D. Bertrand that can handle it, I think is a good thing because you're going to need them at different times because of injuries to play multiple positions. But I think giving that assignment to Jalen Sneed wasn't fair. I think he needed to learn the rover position, learned to learn learn a niche play position so you could get a really good athlete on the field instead of him, you know, jumbling up his mind with what JD Bertrand was supposed to be doing when he was never going to play JT JD Bertrand's position this year. Um, I think one thing that helps player development. Is having the portal. You know, I think it would be really bad if Notre Dame brought in as many portal players as USC did last year or Brian Kelly did two years in a row. I just don't think that's what Notre Dame's about. Um, in terms of being able to get players to Notre Dame, you're selling them on four for 40, not one for one. So I think you're um trying to maybe plug some holes so that you don't have to live with the natural cycles in football, where you're going to be young in a certain position group. You can always have a veteran player if you play the portal correctly. And uh, so that's my answer to it. If we had a podcast solely on that, I would give you a more in-depth and specialized answer. But between you and Marie, we're going to have to have a Marine LDL podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah, I uh, I didn't know. I, I, I wasn't sure how to answer this question. I, I think you probably did a better job than I than I will because you pulled out some specifics. I just think it, it's too I, – I don't think you can, like, paint in the broad brush about what needs to happen in the program that both improves the defensive line and the Renzo styles. Like, I think everyone is on their own unique growth trajectory. Every case is individual. The relationship with the coaches is, is different. Um, so like, and
2: all this ties into Matt Bayless too. I mean, correct. Matt Bayless is all, all tied into this. Yeah. Well, and I'll so, give you another specific Dylan McCullough, I think was outstanding in coaching the running game and instincts with the running back and blocking schemes and stuff. But I don't think the running backs themselves were good in pass blocking
0: as they have been. No, they were not. Um, so, so that, that, that needs to be worked that, on. Yeah. That would be like, that's the, if you ask me, like, what did the lo- running backs need to do better? That would be the 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 point the point that they do, and so how they go about correcting that and developing that and addressing that um, is specific to that coach and those players versus how what they need to do on the defensive line with creating better pass rush or whatever whatever you decide that the issue is there. So, I, I like I felt like otherwise I would be like so it, unless we went like down and broke broke down like every specific thing, I be, I would be talking in too many like coaching cliches like uh continue to invest in the players cultivate a culture of growing challenge everything as marcus freeman likes to say um enhance is one of what one of marcus freeman's words as well um so i, I get the, the, the one thing was in there about what what coaches can keep up with those recruiting and development expectations i think every eight is expected to keep up with that or they wouldn't have been retained for for notre dame so um Certainly, maybe as we sort of illuminated with our grades for the 2022 seasons, there are some coaches that maybe have more to prove going into this season than others. Um, But I think there's reason. There's an understanding of why there's faith that that could end up working out for for each individual coach. All right, we have just a couple more questions here on a bit of a long podcast today. Uh, Hopefully this carries you through the weekend. Uh, This question is from uh, another one from Henry at Henry Bede. There seems to be eight to 12 players on the roster who the coaches are sure will transfer before the start of next season. How will the staff handle these players during spring practice? Will these players be held out of practice to maximize reps for returning players?
2: Well, I, I the, this whole um, roster churn, roster management thing is more art than science. You know, Brian Kelly was the one that kind of pushed the threshold up a little bit more because Early in his time at Notre Dame, he ended up having some seasons where there were 79 or 80 scholarship players and he wasn't max maxing out that roster. And so this going to 93, 94, 95 players in the off season isn't new. They've been doing this for maybe the past five years uh, since Brian had his uh, reawakening after the 2016 season. And, you know, they do exit interviews with the players. And, and so you'll get, you will there, there'll be a couple of players, for example, that you aren't sure that you're pretty sure are going to be medical hardships. And if you're tight for scholarships, you kind of have to push that button. Like Will Schweitzer is a guy that I think you have to keep an eye on with that. He didn't play last year. Marcus mentioned in a December press conference that In January, they were going to see if he had a football future. So um, now Will may want to transfer and go somewhere else and try to rehab and play again. But if he stays at Notre Dame, he would be a medical hardship. But I'm just using that as an example. I'm not saying that's definitely going to happen. There's other players that you have in your exit interview say, you know, if I'm not in the two deeps by this after spring, I'm probably going to go looking in the portal in May. And so they have an idea. So you want to give those players reps because they may win a starting job. Uh, So you haven't clearly identified who those players are. You just know, here's likely what our number is going to be. There's a little bit of wiggle room sometimes with medical hardships. There is maybe a one-person wiggle room with Ron Paulus, the third scholarship, and that he could convert to walk-on and still as an employee's kid, get the scholarship that way. So, uh, But they're pretty confident they're going to hit the number, and and that's why they, they're really careful with uh, spring-slash-summer portal additions. They have to know this is the number we'll get to. They'll, they'll also know if there's a player that's in real serious academic trouble. Notre Dame had a freshman cornerback leave the roster because he had to go to junior college to get his grades right, and they knew that unless there was a miracle, that that was going to happen. Um, and and I guess miracles do happen, but um, it didn't in that case. So again, it's just kind of massaging those numbers and being real careful once you get to the end of spring practice.
0: Yeah, I think I I agree with most of that. I think the one thing like, I think there's probably. There are people in the goog who have a list of guys. Like, there's a list. Like, these are the guys that are, are, I made are, a list, are, are attrition. Yeah. We've made a list. We, we have, we have plenty of stories ready to go on guys that could decide to enter the transfer portal. So we don't, uh, sit, sit there for, for a, a lot of time without having something up on our website about it. Um, so, so it, it there is like a sign, like they, they are, they, there are guys that, I, I mean, to say they're like on the chopping block might be a little bit too strong, but there are guys that these are the, this is the list of players from which we will lose. We will lose guys. They'll be lower on the depth chart as they go into spring practice, which I don't know. I mean, it is somewhat different than what it would be pre portal, but I mean, you're always going to have guys that are just sort of buried and aren't going to get a ton of reps um, because yes, you need to develop those guys, but you also need to get your best guys better too. So um, I think now in this portal era, the staff may not go out of their way, hoping for a long-term payoff with one of those guys who's been buried and hasn't made the progress. Um, and then that sort of expedites the process of them and ending up in the transfer portal. I, I, I will say I, I'm i rather su- surprised by the, the low number of transfer portal entries going into this semester. I thought there would be more guys that have, would have already jumped into the portal. Now maybe we'll see that change. In the next few days but that would be weird timing because the the window to get somewhere else although like it could be like guys that entered the transfer portal before the bowl game like they could decide to just not be with the team in the spring i mean that that could happen you could uh, say you're a guy that wants to knows you want to transfer you get in the portal now maybe you don't know your destination you can still finish out the semester at notre dame and do your own individual work and feel like maybe you'll be better for having specific workouts and doing things on your own than you would be doing things for the team and maybe not getting as much work as you you would hope to get.
2: Right. And there are guys that can transfer, wait until the spring to transfer because they need the spring and the summer to get that Notre Dame degree. And they want that Notre Dame degree. We've seen um, players even say, Hey, I'm going to transfer after the summer. I think uh, who was the, Michael Young was like that. Michael Mm -hmm. Young uh, ended up having to have spring and summer to get the Notre Dame degree before he went to Cincinnati. But so that's one. The other thing with the medical hardship, the one that I kind of had the player take me through was David Adams. You know, David had so many injury issues when he came to Notre Dame. And they knew that this wasn't going to end well. And it took really... To, to the end of spring for Brian Kelly to sit down with David and say, look, you're not the, the player that we know you can be is still inside you, but you're never going to be that player again. And David then had to decide, do I want to transfer or do I want to be a medical hardship? And he chose medical hardship. Uh, and then, you know, very late in his time at Notre Dame thought about the portal and reversing that medical hardship it's a very difficult process, and he realized, you know, Brian Kelly was right several years ago. It was really interesting to be kind of on the inside of that.
0: Yeah, and Notre Dame does a pretty good job w- with some of those guys that become medical hardships that want to be around the team still. Hunter Spears is a guy that was around the team for a while. Um, And so they will find, like, roles for those guys in practice, where there's sort of like a manager role um to keep them around. I mean, because a lot of times those are your, your closest friends on campus. And so if you sort of disassociate with that, um, that could be difficult. I I know for my, like, obviously a much different level, but I stopped playing football at DePaul after my freshman year and all my friends were football players. Um, And it was such a hard decision to no longer play football that I like, I was like, I don't want to be around. Like the coaching staff was like, do you want to be like a player or like a a student coach and help us out? I was like, "I I need to separate myself from it and find like who I am away from football rather than sort of, continue to be with the football program so there are different options there um for those players to decide where they're at with their medical future and what they want to try to continue to push themselves toward all right last question we have is from bert leonard at bert 2834 and uh this one isn't necessarily an easy one too although i, I think i did fi- i did find the answer um has any athletic director had to replace the football baseball and both, both basketball coaches in this short of a time period, assuming that Mike Bray gets replaced. Okay, the, if you found an answer, then you're smarter than me.
2: I went backwards, um, and there was always one of those elements missing at least. And then, you know, women's basketball hasn't been around forever. So I the closest that I came was kind of in that 2000-2002 range when Bray was hired, and then you had George O'Leary hired, and then a few weeks later, Tyrone Willingham hired as football coach. <laughs> but Moffat was entrenched as the women's basketball coach, and Paul Maneri was entrenched as a baseball coach. Went back to 64, and you had Era and Johnny D coming in in the same year but you had Jake Klein, who was the baseball coach for 42 years. So it was tough to find a crack (laughs) where the baseball, and and then there was no women's basketball at that point. So if you went earlier than that, there wasn't women's basketball. And and Jake Klein ruined this question for a lot of different years. Um, There was even a basketball, a guy that coached basketball and baseball, and then Moose Kraus, the athletic director, coached sports too at different points. But I'll be interesting to see what Tyler came up with because um, my head started to hurt.
0: Yeah, so we went we went about it differently. I didn't stick specific to Notre Dame. I went to other oh, other okay. schools. Um, that was what where I I guess I don't know for sure if that's what Bert was looking for or not. Um, but it, that made sense to me because I feel like this current cycle of coaching, I think lends itself to maybe this possibly happening than it would have, like you mentioned, like okay. women's basketball. Well, we have
2: two different answers.
0: It hasn't been around. So the one that I came up with now, this might not be the only one, but I was trying, I was just sort of going through like big time programs and I was thinking, okay, who's, rep- I started with football coach. Cause that's what I know, like off the top of my head, like I I can name the programs that changed football Almost coaches. Like
2: LSU. Is-
0: L- and yeah, LSU is, is the answer that I came up with, with Kim Mulkey was hired ahead of the 2021 season. Um, as the women's basketball coach, the new baseball coach, Jay Johnson was hired before 2022. The new events basketball coach was hired before 2022 and, and his family and Brian Kelly was hired before 20, before 2022. Some of the other, one other one that could, it maybe it's like in this sort of neighborhood what about of, men's
2: basketball at LSU was that? Yeah. Matt, was, Mc,
0: Matt McMahon is okay, his name. Okay. He, he, he was a replacement okay. in 2022 because they had the coach that got in trouble with the, the NCAA will Wade. Right. Um, okay. So, FSU could be sort of in the same boat Mike Norvell sort of it was hired in 2020 uh new women's basketball coach in 2022 new baseball coach obviously um with Link Jarrett um and Leonard Hamilton is sort of on a I think maybe a similar hot seat that Mike Bray is on because Florida State is 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 very bad at basketball I, he's been there a long time as well so maybe maybe there's a change coming there um there was a bit I mean when I was covering Notre Dame basketball, he was Miami's head coach. Uh, USC could be in the same. I, I don't know that USC's men's basketball coach is in the same dire straits as maybe Mike Bray and, and Leonard Hamilton are. Um, Isn't that and, guy the guy Florida, Florida Gulf Coast. Coast. Yeah, Florida yeah. Gulf Andy, Coast. Andy Enfield, he's still there. But they have a w- new women's basketball coach ahead of 2021 and Lindsey Gottlieb, um, and then obviously Lincoln Riley in football, and their new. Ba- they have a new baseball coach this offseason, Andy Stankiewicz. Um, so there, there may be more answers, but those, those were some of the ones that sort of came up to me. So I, hopefully between what I talked about and what you talked about, we gave Bert some sort of conceptual idea idea or context to what, what Jack Swarbrick could, could be going through here. But I just think like in this era of so many coaching movements and changes that, um, it's not as, it, it wouldn't be unheard of what, what Notre Dame could be going through, um, if, if you would have potentially four new head coaches in those sports in a three-year time period. All right, that's it for today's episode of the Inside Indie Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with your favorite teacher. You want to or we want to get to uh, 100 ratings on Apple Podcasts in 2023. And uh, we also love to read the reviews. Joe Seiler, who is a frequent podcast question submitter, um, left one recently. Eric and Tyler are the best duo. Their experience, professionalism and insights are second to none. And you can trust their reports. They have a great they have great relationships with players and staff and they are respected in the industry. Love all their articles and podcasts. So thank you, Joe, for the review. We give you five stars as well. Um, We will have a Monday Night Live show coming up on YouTube next week, and we'll be back with another podcast as well. Until then, stick with InsideNDSports.com for all your Notre Dame coverage needs.